Hi, everybody. Hello. I am Nicole Parker. And if you were here for the last seminar, you saw the handsomest man in the world, my husband, Alan. I am very blessed to be married to him. And um, we're having fun, racing back and forth here. The two are one, right? <laughs> we switch places. I told everybody, I, you know, you never know which one of us you're going to see when you get there. But um, the two are one, so it doesn't matter. All right, let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come into your presence now asking that you will bring your word alive for us. Lord, I am I'm just a faulty human, but I know that you can bring a message even through me to every person here, and I pray that you will do that. Help each one of us to come away blessed and able to see how your word can do so much more in our lives. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right. Sword or sawdust? Vitalizing devotional Bible study. Um, you know, for me, my, my journey with the Bible has been a complicated one. I grew up in an Adventist home, and we had worships every day and all of that sort of thing. So I had a, a fairly solid foundation in biblical knowledge. I can't remember when I learned the Bible stories, you know, David and Goliath and all those kinds of things. But I just always kind of knew them. And the Bible stories were interesting enough to me when I was little. We used to listen to your story hours. Um, versions of everything and hear all the, the battles, the armies clashing and all those great things. But then when I got older and less in touch with God also, the Bible became just more and more boring. It was just this big book. And, you know, I would always be asking my mom, can we go rent a movie? I'm so bored. And she's like, well, you know, you could go and read. You know, we have all those beautiful red books. We have a Bible, you know. And I was like, mom... You know, the Bible was boring to me. Why would I want to read the Bible? I knew all those stories, and just sitting down and reading it was like eating sawdust. That's why I called it sword or sawdust, because that's how I felt about reading the Bible. It was like eating sawdust. I could do it, and I was supposed to do it, and when I listened to a sermon every now and then, there would be something that was kind of like, wow, you know, that was kind of neat. But to read the Bible myself personally just sounded like a really, really boring thing to do, especially because there were so many exciting novels to read and things like that, that that was what I really enjoyed. That was what fed my soul. The Bible did not. And when I was 16, I went to Washita Hills Academy, and I started studying the Bible there. For a couple of years before that, I was uh, at a, a school, a Christian school, that made us have devotional time every morning. We would sit for 10 minutes and read our Bibles or something. So I think I highlighted... Psalms and Proverbs or something like that. And I started seeing, well, you know, the Bible is kind of neat. It has some neat little things in there. But the Bible was not really anything important to me. It was boring still and hard to understand. You know, prophecies. I knew there was this, some kind of something that happened in 1844, and it seemed like there was something that happened in 1888. And, you know, but the, studying the Bible did not do anything for me. I wasn't into it. Then when I gave my life to Christ... Somebody introduced me to this beautiful, big, thick book called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. How many of you have ever used one of those? It was amazing. Wow, I could look up a word. I'd find a verse and think, hmm, I wonder what that means. And I'd look it up in that ponderous Greek volume and find out, wow, look at that, or the Hebrew word. It was amazing. And I started getting things out of the Bible that I hadn't before. Around that time, I decided I was going to spend an hour of devotional time every day with God, and I felt terribly guilty if I didn't get my whole 60 minutes in. You can understand. I was, I was at that stage. I was trying to grow. I really wanted to be a Christian, 
And, you know, as I started studying the Bible like that and studying the spirit of prophecy, it became more interesting. I started getting into it a little bit more. I started seeing, wow, you know, the Bible does have some neat stuff in it. Started going to prophecy seminars and things like that and learning things from the Bible and seeing cool things in Bible stories that I'd always heard, but I never thought about, you know, what was it really like for Daniel to have been out in the desert all this time so hungry, so thirsty, so miserable, and then he gets there and there's all this tremendous smelling food, you know, right out in front of him. What would that be like? You know, starting to really think about the Bible stories. That was interesting, it was refreshing, and the Bible became more interesting to me. But then I kind of hit a, a phase for a while where, you know, I'd read the Bible a lot, and I knew what it said. All my Daniel section in the Bible was all marked up with all the little notes, and I knew all these things about prophecy and and I read the Bible regularly, but I can't say that it was really exciting to me. I kind of hit this lull in my devotional time for a couple of years there, where I just didn't really get a whole lot out of the Bible. Every now and then I'd read a good book that mentioned something in the Bible, and it would bring out things, and I'd be like, wow, that's cool. I didn't know that was in the Bible. But actually studying the Bible for myself didn't do a lot for me. I would, you know, read through the book of Luke or, you know, read it a couple of chapters a day or, you know, things like that. But I just couldn't really get into it. Then, as I started um, studying the Bible more in a new way, the Bible started really coming alive to me. And that's what I want to share with you today about how devotional Bible study really changes our lives. The first thing you got to know about reading the Bible is it's not a novel. I know that seems so, you know, basic, so duh, but for me, growing up addicted to novels, I really had a hard time getting into the Bible. You know, when you're reading a, a novel, even just most stories that you read nowadays, true stories, it tells you what the hero or the heroine looks like, and, you know, the color of their eyes, and how they are, and, you know, there are all these intricate relationships that you're reading about. It's exciting. You can't put it down. The Bible, on the other hand, was written, you know, to cover thousands of years of history in a very brief space and just getting the essentials down. You don't know what anybody looks like in the stories in the Bible unless it's important to the story itself. You know, we know Rebecca was beautiful. We know that Bathsheba was beautiful. We know Queen Esther was beautiful. We don't know what Ruth actually looked like because it's not important to the story, right? The things that are happening in the story are about character, about revealing God. And if that's not important, the details are left out. It's hard for us in our, in our current culture to really get into things like that. We want to know all the juicy details. How did Ruth feel about Boaz? You know what I mean? But the Bible doesn't get into those things. And if you're reading the Bible the same way you try to read a novel, which is what I used to do, you'll find the Bible dead boring. It's just not meant to be read that way. It's condensing down all this history of things that happened over a huge period of time. And remember, these people didn't have typewriters. They didn't have computers. They have to make paper or write on a clay tablet or something. You know what I mean? And then anything that they write out, if anybody else wants to get it, they have to memorize it and repeat it, or they have to write it all out on more. You know, it, it was a lot of work for them to haul around these books. So the Bible kept it down to the basics, the bare minimum. And that's really important because when you read the Bible, you got to know it's not like a novel that somebody just sat down and typed out. There are so many people over thousands of years that have had to write this out word for word, painfully, even hiding in caves. You know, this Bible, everything in it 
is precious. Everything in it is important. Any verse that you open up and read, there's a reason it's in there. God has put it there for a reason. All those begats, they show how long the world has been around. All those things that show this, this genealogy, it, it shows each person, even though they may be forgotten by people hundreds of years later, they had a place and God knew of their name. Those little details, it's important. Everything in your Bible is important. God has put it there for a reason. So you can get a blessing out of reading the Bible, anything in there. But to really be able to understand the Bible, it's got to be studied, not just read. The Bible is meant to be studied with a discerning, meditative heart. It's designed for personal applications to the heart. If you're just reading through the Psalms, you're not going to get a whole lot out of it. I know people who, for their devotions, they decide they're going to read through the Gospels or something like that. You know, that's, that's really shallow. There's nothing wrong with reading through the Gospels. I do it for fun. It's wonderful. But if you want to really have a devotional life that's solid, you can't just, you know, try to say, okay, I'm going to read three chapters a day until I get through, no matter how long it takes me. You know, that's a great idea to read through the Bible that way, but don't make that your devotional time. We're talking about devotional time. How do you spend time with God? The Bible is the story of redemption, and as we read that as a story of redemption, it's different. Now, what is redemption? Let's read this together. Redemption is the process of transforming sinful people into the image of God. That's what redemption is. It's a God who bought people. Isn't that what redeem means? To take them? Here, here's a group of beings. God made them perfect. He designed us with the potential to grow into being just like him throughout all of eternity. We'll never reach becoming completely like him. You know, he knows everything. He is perfect. He is love. He's the embodiment of love. Love is God and God is love. We can't fully comprehend that. But he made us, he made Adam and Eve originally as these two people who are supposed to spend all of eternity beholding God and being changed into his image day after day after day. They'd look at nature and they would see things they'd never seen before about what God was like. Wow, look what he did there. That shows that he's like this. They would spend time communing with him and they'd go, wow, you're so loving. This is amazing. And so they would be changed into his image as they admired what God was like. They would become like God, more and more and more throughout all of eternity. We'll never reach the spot where we're like, wow, now I've finally gotten there. I'm like God too. But they would be growing throughout all of eternity more and more into his image. That's important because what happened at the fall? God says, don't do it, don't do it. You guys don't do it. They did it anyway. And God says, okay, now, not just in spite of sin, but actually because of sin, the universe is going to know what I'm like in ways they never could have. This is the God we serve, this incredible God who takes bad things that weren't his will and uses them to fulfill his purpose. His purpose is to change us into his image. And how does he change us? By beholding we're changed, right? So as we behold God, we're changed into his image. And now the whole universe would see this God of love in ways they never could have before as he sacrifices himself to buy back people who don't deserve it who rebelled deliberately against him. This is the gospel. This is redemption. It's amazing. I can never contemplate that enough. That is the gospel. Can you imagine? He bought you. You rebelled. You were worthless. You're just a ball of mud. And he didn't have to do anything with any of us. He could have just said, whoops, that one didn't work out. And 
nobody would have ever known. You know, even with Lucifer, he could have said, well, bzz, we're not going to have that one here anymore. And people say, well, but then everybody in heaven would have served him out of fear, which is true. But he's God. He could remove the memory of Lucifer from everybody, right? He could have done that. Bzz, that one's out. But that's not the way God works. God is love. And so God would have always known that he had done that. Even if nobody else knew, God would have known. I zapped him. And God would have said, that's not good enough. That's not perfect love. So God, in his great love, he practices redemption. He reveals himself in deeper and better ways. You know, Lucifer, God couldn't reveal himself anymore to Lucifer. Lucifer had stood in the presence of God and made his decision to rebel. But for Adam and Eve, they had made a decision thinking, well, you know, we're just beholding good. Wouldn't it be cool to behold evil too? And curiosity has gotten us into this whole mess. So now they behold good and evil, and they have to make a decision. Which one do I want to be? God lures us to him. He draws us by showing us what love is like. And as we see that, we're like, wow, love is like that? And then we see selfishness, and we're like, oh, why am I like that? I don't want to be like that. I want to be like that. We want to be changed by beholding. And this is the process of redemption. That's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is all about redemption. And how do we get redeemed? How does God change us? His original plan with Adam and Eve was what? I'm going to change you into my image, right? And throughout all of eternity, God would be continually changing them more and more day by day into his image. Now, we've had the fall, but God says, don't worry. I am still God, and anybody who surrenders to me, I'll still do this. I'll change them into my image. What does the Bible have to do with that process of redeeming us? We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Now, back then, remember, they didn't have glass, glass mirrors like we do. They had a really shiny piece of metal. So when you're beholding in a glass, for them, their mirrors didn't work as well as our mirrors. They're beholding, and it looks really shiny, but you can't really see yourself as clearly as other people can see your face. You're beholding, so it's a little murky, but you can still see what God is like. We're beholding as in a glass, a little murky, but we're going to behold the glory of the Lord, and we're changed into that same image. As we look at him, as we see that's what love is like, then we're changed. We say, I want to be like that, but I'm like this. God, now I see how I want to be changed. Take this away from me. Change this selfishness and make me like you. This is the purpose of devotional time. I'm not talking about Bible study in general. There are lots of reasons to study the Bible. and We can study the Bible all day, every day, and never get everything we need to out of it. But I'm talking about devotional Bible study. We're told, you know, you need to spend a thoughtful hour with God every day meditating on him. What does that mean? I'm talking about devotional Bible study. This is spending time with God, beholding him, beholding his love, seeing what he's like, because that's what changes us into his image. That's what devotions are like. That's what they're supposed to do, change us into his image every day. The word is alive. You know, the word of God is quick and powerful. That means it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing through to the dividing asunder of the joints and marrow. It's the, the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Remember, God is always after your heart. There's nothing else that he really cares about like he cares about your heart.
The Bible talks about the heart all the time. We think of the heart as emotions so often in our culture, but the heart is the center of who you are. The Bible talks about the heart as the place from which everything else in you flows. So God wants to change our hearts to purify the fountain so that everything else in our lives is transformed. Most of us don't grasp the true power of the Word of God. We have our own idea. You know, the Bible is this book that we carry around. The Bible is the Word of God. You know, remember, Jesus was the Word made flesh. So Jesus lived out for us what he wanted us to behold. But for us to, to rely every day on impressions, you know, Abraham, he didn't have a Bible to walk around with. And God revealed himself to Abraham in wonderful ways. But Abraham, remember, he's out in the desert. He doesn't have an iPad. He's, he's in a place where he spends a lot of time in solitude, herding sheep or milking cows or whatever you do, you know, riding a camel. He's got a lot of time to meditate. And Abraham communed with God in ways that hardly anybody does these days. And God could speak to him through his heart and say, go sacrifice your son. And Abraham knew that's God's voice. He knew God. In our culture, people are more and more degraded by sin. As we get closer and closer to the end of time, our minds are weaker. We just, we don't comprehend and we're too easily led astray by our feelings. We pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? And we get an idea in our head and think, wow, that's God's will. Or is it? That's why God gave us the word of God, because this is something solid. We don't have to go, Lord, I prayed really hard and I thought I should do this. But today I feel like I should do that. Which one do you want me to do? God does guide us through his spirit. But this is why he's given us his word and why it's so important at the end of time, because we can't rely on our feelings. They lead us astray. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and God wants us to have something solid. That's what the word of God is. That's what the Bible is, something solid. You can read those words and go back a week later or a year later. It still says the same thing. It may say something different to your heart, something that you didn't even think of a year ago. The word is alive and powerful. It keeps applying to every situation in every person's life. Um, many Christians, this is from a book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp, which is a powerful book. I recommend every Christian should read this book. It really portrays the glory of the gospel. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 24, says, Many Christians simply don't understand what the Bible is. Many think of it as a spiritual encyclopedia. God's complete catalog of, comp of human problems coupled with a complete list of divine answers. If you turn to the right page, you can find answers for any struggle. And I hear this a lot. You know, people come to me for counseling. They're like, oh, I'm just, I'm struggling with depression. So I need to go to a counselor to help me with my depression. I'm like, okay, how is a counselor going to help you with your depression? Well, I don't know. But that's your job. You're supposed to help me with my depression. And then as a Christian counselor, I'm supposed to, what, give them a little promise and say, here, this will make you feel better. Whenever you feel bad, meditate on this. Have you tried singing? Have you tried singing when you start feeling down? Here's a little promise. Let me pray for you. I'll, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Hang in there. You know what I mean? How does, how does the Bible really impact on those people? My job as a counselor, a biblical counselor, I believe, is to help those people to understand how the glory of the gospel, the plan of redemption, applies to their lives. You see, you may be depressed or you may not be depressed, and your depression may be partly chemical, it may be completely biological, it may be completely because you sit around thinking about yourself and eating chocolate too much. Um, <laughs> and it's probably some combination of the two. <laughs> but even if, you're, 
even if your problem is completely biological and that's causing you depression, the gospel still applies to you because God takes us where we are with whatever situation we face. He doesn't just change our circumstances. He changes our attitude. He changes our heart because that's the God we serve. And as he changes our heart, he helps us to deal with those feelings so that whether or not I feel depressed, I will live joyfully in the presence of God. You know, many of the Bible writers went through times of great depression, but God was able to help them through those times to become deeper and richer and better people. And that's what God wants to do. Whatever circumstances you face, God wants to take those circumstances and transform you into his image, not just in spite of them, but actually because of them. Sometimes the very things that weren't God's will to happen to you in the first place can still be used for his glory. It isn't God's will for a drunk driver to run into you and paralyze you. But even if it does happen, God can use those things that happen to you to accomplish his purpose of changing you into his image. His will was that we never sin, right? But his purpose is still accomplished, not just in spite of sin, but actually because of sin. His purpose of revealing his love to the universe. So people and through all the universe will go, wow, that's the kind of God he is? That's the kind of love he represents? I want to be like that. God's purpose will never be circumvented. No matter what people do, his purpose will be fulfilled. You know, if you look in your Bible, in uh, the story of Moses and Pharaoh, there's this fascinating verse. I don't even remember where it is. But where Moses, God says to Moses to tell Pharaoh, he says, tell Pharaoh this. Tell Pharaoh that I have ordained him so that through him I will be known to all the nations of the earth. Now, did Pharaoh cooperate with God in trying to accomplish his purpose? Not at all. But was God's purpose fulfilled? God's purpose was fulfilled. No matter what Pharaoh did, God did reveal himself to all the nations around him. If Pharaoh had cooperated with God's will, then he would have been a lot better off. But God's purpose will be accomplished no matter what. My, you know, I can circumvent God's will. I can say, I refuse to follow you. I refuse to surrender my heart to you. And I can be lost in the end. But God's purpose will still be fulfilled in my life because the universe will have watched and seen how I lived out selfishness instead of love. And they'll say, ooh, we don't want that. She deserves to die. She has to go because she won't cooperate with the law of love that the entire universe has to function on. God's purpose of revealing what his love is like will be revealed by the way he treats me, whether or not I cooperate with his will. There's a little diversion there. So you, you can see what I'm talking about. The Bible is used by God to fulfill his purpose. So people, when they, when they come to me, they've got a question. They've got something they want to have fixed. I'm dealing with depression. I want the depression to go away. I'm addicted to pornography. I want the pornography addiction to go away. I'm, you know, upset because my husband doesn't want to spend time with me anymore. Okay, so what did you want me to do? Well, I want you to fix it. Make my husband want to spend time with me. Or at least make me happy with the fact that my husband doesn't want to spend time with me. Somehow fix it. But the Bible doesn't say that God will fix all of our circumstances. It does say that he will change our hearts. And as a result, we will view our circumstances differently. Now, as we spend time in the word and letting it transform us, as we behold this whole plan of redemption, and in the context of that plan of redemption, we look at what the Bible is saying to my heart today, we will be changed into God's image. 
Some people, though, even if they don't see the Bible as a spiritual encyclopedia, have you ever felt like, you know, God, why didn't you organize this a little better? If you could have just put all the verses about this here, all the things about how to have peace of mind, all in one place. You know, the, the thing with an encyclopedia, an encyclopedia is, is divided into categories, right? And I can read all about uh, cedar wax wings. And I don't have to read any of the other articles around that in the encyclopedia because it's isolated. It's all about cedar wax wings. And if I want to find out about something else in the same volume, I can go and turn to that. But it's not related to that. The Bible is not like that. It's not in little categories. The Bible is all this overarching plan of redemption. God transforming humanity into his image and using the power of love to do what no earthly power can do. And every story and everything in the Bible fits into that grand theme of redemption. Now, some people don't look at the Bible as an encyclopedia, but a more sophisticated variant views the Bible as a systematic theology textbook, an outline of essential topics you must master to think and live God's way. That's also Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 24. Now, in that, that, that's often how a lot of Adventists look at the Bible, I think. We kind of think, well, we've got to know what the Bible says about all of these things. And, you know, I need to memorize that. I need to know what happened in Daniel. I need to know the prophecy. I need to know what's happening at the end of time. And I should know all these Bible stories. You know, we want to, we want to know what the Bible says. You know, teach me about faith or grace or the law, you know, the, the balance between law and grace understanding the sanctuary. In either case, we tend to offer each other isolated pieces of scripture, a command, a principle, a promise that seem to fit the need of the moment. What we think of as ministering the word is little more than a spiritual cut and paste system. See, people, people want to find something that'll work, that'll fix how they feel right now. But God wants us to look at everything in our lives in the context of redemption. He wants us to apply the gospel to what's going on to me in my life today. In this kind of ministry, that is, when we're just looking for something to, you know, fix what I'm going through in my life. Lord, my husband doesn't want to spend time with me and I don't know what to do about it. Please help me. We want him to do something. But he wants to change our hearts. In this kind of ministry, self is still at the center. Lord, please help me to get that job. Please help this person to like me. Or not like me if they're not the right person. But we're looking at the little things going on to, uh, in our lives today. Personal need is the focus. And personal happiness remains the goal. Lord, I really want to get married. I hope that's okay with you. You know what I mean? None of you have ever prayed that prayer, right? But a truly effective ministry of the word must confront our self-focus and self-absorption at its roots, opening us up to the vastness of a God-defined, God-centered world. I remember when um, I was uh, talking with this girl, a, a girl I knew from a, a college, and she called me up one Friday evening and said, can I come over? I just need to talk about something. So I said, sure, come on over. I made us some tea, and we sat down together. And she said, can you pray I get a boyfriend? <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> probably that's really not what I wanted to pray about. <laughs> Have you thought about letting God into the center of your life? So I talked with her for a while about that, about how she wasn't really spending time with God, how her life was kind of spiritually dry and desolate, and that what she really needed was to start spending time regularly with God and learning how to let him be the center of her world, the center of her sense of identity and worth and lovability. 
So we talked for maybe 20 minutes, and she said, yeah, but would you still be willing to pray that I can get a boyfriend? <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, I, I will pray that the Lord will give you what you need, but I know it's not a boyfriend. And not long after that, I won't say who answered her prayer, but she got a boyfriend. And, uh, of course, it didn't work out because our idols have to crumble. And, you know, not long after that, everything had fallen apart, and the guy was a jerk. And where he seemed like he was so wonderful, man, he was a jerk. And, of course, after that, she found another boyfriend. And then, what do you know? He was a jerk, too. Because, of course, his life wasn't God-centered either. They were two magnets looking for somebody to fasten onto instead of uh, turning toward God. That's the way it always is. When we don't have Christ at the center of our lives, we look for someone or something to worship. God wants us to have a God-defined, God-centered world. And as we spend time with God every day, He will change our focus so that we can face the day and say, whatever happens to me, I can choose to rejoice in you. You know, yesterday, when it didn't look like we were going to be able to get on the flight to come out here, um, I gathered my kids together because I had visions. My husband was on the plane. He had a, he had a first-class seat. But the kids and I were all on standby, and we didn't know if we were going to be able to get on the plane. And I could see the handwriting on the wall. All the seats were taken. All these people had just crowded on the plane. We were still standing there. It said there were zero available seats on the, the board on the wall kind of thing, you know. And so I said, okay, guys, let's pray that Jesus will help us to have happy hearts no matter what happens, even if Daddy goes on the plane and we all stay here. I was, you know thinking, great, we're all going to be standing here with them bellowing, and hopefully they'll be the only ones crying <laughs> as he wanders off into the sunset, and I stay there with three exhausted, cranky children in Atlanta. <laughs> but then the Lord opened the doors, and we were able to get onto the plane. But you see, what was much more important to me with my children was not whether or not we got onto the plane. It was that we learn that in whatever a situation we face, God's strength will be enough. His grace will be sufficient. Our circumstances may not be what we want, but we can choose the right attitude. This is what God wants. We go to him all the time with circumstances. Lord, I'm really scared about this test. Can you help me with it? He says, how about we think about your attitude? Can we talk about your heart today? Where, where is your heart? How much time did you spend studying for this test? And why did you go shopping with your friends instead of studying for this test when you knew you needed to study? What was going on in your heart? You see, God always aims for our hearts. And our circumstances, well, he loves to change our circumstances. I prayed very hard that I would be able to get on the flight to come here, believe me. <laughs> God wants to be able to change our circumstances, but his main focus is always changing our hearts. And that's what the Bible is about. That's why many people read the Bible and their lives aren't changed because they're still focusing on themselves. Their need is the focus. Many people will read the Bible regularly, and yet, are they living loving lives? Are they bickering and being nasty with other people? They yell at the person who pulls out in front of them in the road? Because they read the Bible, but they're not letting the Bible trickle down into the depths of their heart and change them. How do we do that? We need to look at Scripture differently. I'm going to give you some specific hints for it, but let's, first of all, we want to understand Scripture explains humanity in the context of creation, the fall, and redemption. That means God created me in his image. That means a loving person, but with infinite possibility of growing more and more loving throughout eternity as I grow more and more like him. 
Then I fell. I made the decision, Adam and Eve first, but I've done it too many times myself. I've decided, God says, but I feel. And which one do I pick? I pick I feel, naturally. But God says, I will change you. I'm going to redeem you, change you back into a person who seeks after my heart, change you back into a person who's being transformed into my image day by day by day as you look unto Jesus, as you read the word and let it do what it's supposed to do in your life. Um, devotional time is our time to meditate on this great plan of redemption. You know, when we understand creation, we understand, wow, God loves me that much. Here I am, a little ball of mud, and he just made the mud too, right? It's not like I'm not disposable. He makes this mud, then he makes a person, then he breathes into this person the breath of life, stands him up on his feet, and all of a sudden, Adam goes from being a ball of mud that God could speak into existence anytime he wants to, to this person who is of infinite value in God's eyes. And he says, I would die for you. Creation says you are worth so much. You can never possibly understand how much you're really worth. That the God of the universe who rules everything, who can speak that ball of mud into existence and speak another one into existence, who can say, oops, that one rebelled. Well, kick him out. Let's start over. I'll make some new mud. Instead, the God of the universe says, I created him, I breathed the breath of life into him, and at that very second, he became worth more to me than my own life. And he would sacrifice his life for Adam. And he would do that for you. When that really comes down into your heart, it really trickles down in there and you realize no matter whether I'm fat or skinny, ugly or pretty, no matter if no other person on this earth cares whether I live or die, I am of infinite value in the light of creation. Wow. Suddenly you don't have to worry about whether your clothes are in style. Suddenly you don't have to worry about whether you have a big zit on your face. Those things are irrelevant. Sure, sure, you would like to have everything go your way. But you are so loved that when somebody rejects you or you find out somebody's talking bad for, about you, it may hurt, but it doesn't crush you. It doesn't destroy you. It doesn't make you need to find somebody who will love you because you're so loved. You're so loved. Creation reveals how much God loves you. Now, when you study about creation in the Bible, you also hit the fall. Then I fell, and I am a carnal person, sold unto sin. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So you come to grips with, wow, even though I'm worth so much, I do so many trashy things. How can I be so bad? But then that's not the end of the story, is it? Because then there's redemption, and God shows even when you make so many mistakes, even when you have fallen into selfishness, even when you've fallen into the same sin over and over and over until you're so discouraged you just can't even get up and pull your face out of the mud. God says, oh no, you haven't damaged your worth at all. I love you. I love you so much. It's like if you, uh, you take a $100 bill and you stomp it in the mud, you, you, you know, drop it in the driveway and run over it a few times. Do you pull it out of the mud and say, oh, gross, and throw it in the trash can? No, it hasn't lost its value at all. You wash it off, right? You see, God looks at us, and he doesn't see our value damaged in the slightest bit 
by the mess that we've made of our lives. So when you've made a big mess of your life, the devil wants to rub your face in it. He wants to say, you're not worth anything anymore. But God says, oh, no, no, no. I have paid an infinite price for you. You see, that's what redemption shows. Scripture explains us in these three contexts, creation, fall, and redemption. God redeems us. He takes us in all of our mess, in all of our filth, when we're such a disaster, and he says, but you're worth just as much. He pulls that $100 bill out of the mud and says, and watch what I can do. And he changes it. He cleans it. He changes everything in us. And then he changes our very hearts and moves us back into that process of being changed into his image. This is the God that we serve. This is what you want to behold in your devotional time. I talk with young people all the time who come to me for counseling because they don't feel lovable, they don't feel worthwhile, and they don't know who they are. If they're studying the Bible the way that they're supposed to be in their devotional time, they will go, wow, I'm so lovable. I am worth so much. How is your, how is your worth measured? It's in the light of the cross. You know, think about it. When, you know, I've seen some of these Picasso paintings, and sorry, I know some of you may be art enthusiasts who love Picasso, but I think his stuff is just plain ugly. It's ugly. That's not art. Okay, that's me. I said my piece on art. <laughs> but how is the value of that Picasso painting measured? It's measured by the price that somebody out there is willing to pay for it. You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. As you meditate on that price that was paid for you, you really drink it in. Let it become a part of who you are. That's what your devotional time is about, drinking in. Wow, he loves me that much you will find everything else in your life comes into focus. It's like putting on glasses that progressively make your eyes see more clearly. As you look at reality, you, see, you keep seeing, the way that that person treats me is really kind of irrelevant. I don't have to get upset about that. So my car broke down and I won't be able to do the things that I wanted to do this afternoon. That's rough, but it doesn't destroy your life. When somebody says something bad about you or you realize, you know, they're right. I am a mess in that area. I'm totally disorganized. I can't do this. It won't destroy you. You go, man, oh well. But you're still of infinite worth. You're still infinitely lovable. And even when you make a total disaster of your life, even if you realize, look, I have some real disabilities. I have a learning disability. Or maybe I'm just plain ugly. <coughs> Whatever it is, it's totally irrelevant because your value is so amazing in the light of the cross that it doesn't matter. Those little things are just inconsequential details. The main thing that you want to live in is this glorious knowledge of how much you're loved, how much you're worth. And even if you struggle with depression because of some kind of biological reason, that constant consciousness of this incredible worth that God measures you in just makes you go, wow, you know, I'm loved. No matter what I'm going through, no matter how I feel, no matter what kind of breakup you go through, what kind of rejection you face, you're loved. Yes? I was going to just bring out that, that there is a difference between what the world um, says that you are valued in self-esteem versus yes. self-worth. That comes from God. This is where our identity comes from. Mm -hmm, exactly. Our self-esteem movement is one of the greatest idolatrous movements in all of the world's history. Self-esteem says you are special because you're unique. Think about it. Our world tells us to be sure you maximize how unique you are. 
I'm glad you brought that up. I think I might be addressing that later on here. I'm not sure. But anyway, this is what the world tells you. Find something you're special about. A parenting magazine I read not long ago, it said, be sure and get your kid involved in lots of activities, piano lessons, tennis lessons, whatever, so that they will build a good self-esteem. And I thought, oh my goodness, you want my child's self-esteem to be built on what they look like, what they're good at, what happens when they're not anymore? One of my friends, she was a concert pianist. She was hoping to spend her life in a music career. Then she had a snowboarding accident and injured her wrist and couldn't play the piano again. Where would she have been if her sense of identity and worth had been built on her abilities? Those things are shifting sand. If your sense of identity and worth and lovability is built on what people think of you or how good you look or whether you're popular, it goes up and down like the tide and you can guarantee you're going to be insecure. And then the world tells you, oh, you just have to be more secure in who you are. You know, 20 years ago, we had a different word for that. We called it conceited. <laughs> conceited is when you think, I am so special that everybody should love me the way I am. Now they call it, oh, she's got high self-esteem. Well, you know what? People who have high self-esteem and people who have low self-esteem have the same problem. They have a fear of man. The Bible calls it a fear of man when you're too worried about what people think of you. And people who are so shy they don't dare talk because of what other people might think of them. That's a fear of man. People who think that everybody wants to hear what I have to say, so I'll monopolize the whole conversation, have the same thing, the fear of man. They think, well, because people really like me and I'm really valuable to all of those people, I must be worth something. And then, interestingly, um, there's a whole, I don't know if you've seen the, the presentations, I know on Audioverse there are some presentations I did on the difference between worldly self-esteem and godly self-worth. But in uh, godly self-worth, People know their value is measured on this rock-solid foundation of the love of God. But when you don't have that rock-solid foundation, you're desperate because God has created us to long for lovability and worth so that our hearts would be drawn to him to find that sense of lovability and worth. On that, we build our identity. And then when we realize, I'm not really good at that, I'm not really good looking, oh well, we can handle that because those are just inconsequential details. The main thing is I'm of worth in God's eyes. I'm loved by him. And we don't need other people's love. Not that we don't appreciate it, not that we aren't built to love relationships, but we aren't driven by them anymore. Now, the purpose of your devotional time is not to get your scripture memorization done. It is not reading through the Bible. It is not studying out a complicated passage of scripture. It is not putting together a study for someone else or giving me confidence in checking off something on my list of things I must do in order to be spiritual. Um, it's fine to, you know, we all should be memorizing scripture, reading through the Bible. There are so many great things to do in your time with God. But the purpose of your devotional time is beholding God and his love, nurturing your friendship with your Savior, and communing with God about what's going on in your life. My husband's going to be talking about prayer this afternoon. Letting the sword cut wherever my heart needs to be cut. You know, my devotional times are often the times that when I kneel down and I pray and say, Lord, what do we need to talk about today? Right away, he says, you need to apologize to your children. You just, you just used a sharp voice in talking with them. That was not reflecting my love to your children. My job as a parent is to help my children understand what God is like so that even before they even know that there's a creator up there, they know what love is like. They know that there's right and wrong. They know it's okay to be kind and loving. It's not okay to be mean and selfish. 
You know, these are, these are the things that I can teach them by the way that I live, by the way that I talk to them. God wants us to build our sense of worth, lovability, and identity on a relationship with our Creator and Redeemer. On those two, those two topics, that God is our Creator and God is our Redeemer, the Bible says so much because that's what He wants us to meditate on. Think about it. What is the Sabbath for? The Sabbath is a, a reminder of creation and redemption, recreation. That's what we're supposed to think about. God has set aside one day out of seven. He says, I want you to especially spend time thinking about that I created you and I redeemed you because those are the things that you need to build your sense of worth and lovability on. That's where your identity needs to be. And if you're secure in those things, everything else that comes at you in life, you'll be fine. If you're not secure in those things, you're going to become a workaholic or a codependent or an addict of one kind or another. And it really doesn't matter what you're addicted to. Some are more destructive than others, but they're all the same thing, idols things that I flee to for my sense of lovability and worth instead of God. God wants us to get those things out of our personal devotional time. Devotional time is time for me to spend time thinking about God's love for me. Now, um, being changed into the image of God is the purpose of our lives, right? That's the single thing God created you for, even before you sin, to be changed into his image. And as we do that, we will, we will find our devotional time to become more and more rich and beautiful. Now, there are a lot of things that can kill your devotional time. Watching movies, wasting time on the internet, doing empty stuff. The more empty stuff you do that stimulates your mind and makes you feel excited, the more Bible study in comparison is going to get boring and dry. I remember when my sister and I were always, you know, begging for watching movies, and then when both of us were convicted later on that we should stop watching movies, it was a terrible struggle for us. We really wanted to watch movies. We craved them, and that's not an exaggeration. But, you know, a couple of years later, my sister said to me one day, you realize we never get bored anymore, do we? And I thought about it. You know, we used to complain all the time about how bored we were. But after we stopped having that stimulating diet of garbage that was so unrealistic, it was not at all like what happens in the real world, we found ourselves getting less and less bored with life, more and more able to go spend hours out in nature just enjoying ourselves, taking a walk, contemplating things. We weren't addicted to the garbage and to the fast-paced, exciting stuff, so we could appreciate the natural things. Last week, we had our kids up in Gatlinburg um, for family vacation time. So we had this cabin out near um, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And we took the kids into town a couple of times, you know, rode some bumper boi boats for five minutes, that kind of thing. But we took them out all day long into the park. I remember, especially on Sabbath, my daughter was just saying, Wow, Mommy, this is so beautiful. This is so much fun. And I said, yeah, you know, isn't this so much better than being down there in town where all those people are driving around in their loud go-karts and the tinny music and everything else? She says, yeah, you know, this is so much better. And I'm so glad that my daughter has that perspective. I know she loves the thrills and the excitement, but they're not best for her. And this is, this is a way that she will build a, a tolerance for quietness and... Uh, being able to spend time with God. If we get addicted to those other things that are quick, quick fix, make me feel good in 10 minutes kind of things, we miss out on the blessing that God wants us to have. 
If the first thing you turn to when you're down is you, you open your refrigerator, you open your cell phone, you're missing out on opening your, your Bible and getting the, the slower, more lasting kind of satisfaction that God wants you to find from having a deep meditating relationship with Him. This is the, the main thing that I see kills people's devotional time is that they want to feel good now. So when I say, well, you've got to start contemplating the Bible, you've got to contemplate these themes of redemption and creation, they're like, yeah, but I only have 10 minutes a day or whatever. You know, they want to spend, they want to spend time with God, but they want it to fix everything fast. They want to feel good right away. And when they know, you mean I'm going to have to spend weeks spending time with God to be able to really get to the point where I'm feeling good? Well, that's just too long. So they go to other things, quick fixes that devastate in the long run. God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be set free from the addictions, not held by those chains that bind. And the secret ingredient to being freed is letting God fill you in your personal devotional time. You know, if I, if I fasted for three days and then you led me into a banquet room with all my favorite foods spread on a table, I would have a really hard time not looking at those foods and going, I'm longing for them, right? Because I'm hungry. And when you, when you try to break that cycle of going to these things, you're going to find it really hard. I'm going to talk um, this afternoon about breaking the cycle of the broken cistern. Um, but when you're, when you're wanting to go to those things, you go to God instead and as you keep on doing that, you make that choice over and over, the call of the wild, if you want to call it, gets weaker. And the satisfaction of the Lord gets stronger. What if instead you brought me into that banquet room and all my favorite foods are heaped on this table, but I just stuffed myself at a different banquet? Am I going to be going over there going, wow, boy, I want this stuff. No, I'm full. I look at it and go, wow, wish it were another day. But I'm not interested. People, people try to break out of codependency cycles and stuff like that. And codependency is just another word for idolatry. When they, when they really, you know, I, I've tried so many times to help people understand, you know, I know, I know, I need to break up, I need to break up. But they're powerless because they're not being satisfied by God. They cannot break away. They cannot tear their eyes away from that table because that's where their, their desire is. That's what they think is going to satisfy them rather than going to God and spending quality time nurturing a relationship with Him that will be long-term, they go to something quick that will make them feel good. Transforming Bible study is not people trying to save themselves by deep Bible study or people trying to be saved without deep Bible study. There's a narrow path and two sides that you can fall off on. Some people, I find, just say, well, I'm, I am spending time with God. This is a common thing I get when somebody comes to me and says, I just don't know what's wrong in my relationship with God. I am spending time with God every day. I say, okay, how long? Well, I've been spending about 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. Okay, what do you do? Well, I read three chapters of the Bible in the morning. In the afternoon, I, I read another chapter. And I'm like, three chapters? That's, you know, you're, you're checking it off your list. But can you really meditate on all three chapters? There's so many deep things. You know, the Bible isn't written to be read like that. Just, you know, casually go through it and go, okay, help me to have a good day. Amen. And that's not the way God meant for us to spend time with him. He wants us to, to meditate, to think about something, to really draw into his presence.
And transforming Bible study is not people trying to save themselves by deep Bible study. I've known other people who, when they're struggling spiritually, start studying out a topic because it makes them feel better spiritually. They're doing something. That's legalism. That's trying to save yourself by your own works. That's all the Lord has, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Just like back at, at Sinai, you know, people say, oh no, I'm not connected with God. I'm going to do something to connect with God. And they're still relying on themselves. You can't work your way into a relationship with God. You need to give your heart to Him, surrender to Him, draw near to Him. He doesn't want you to check it off the list. If you'll spend your time in devotions every day for two weeks, I'll come and spend time with you. He wants you to build a friendship with Him. What if every day I, I had a, every time I had a date night with my husband, I would spend the time saying, okay, honey, we need to get some things done around the house. Here, let's, let's read through your old love letters that you wrote to me a long time ago, again. You know, instead of actually spending time with him, talking with him, what's going on in your day? How are you feeling about this? How are things between us? Is there anything that I've done that I need to apologize for? You know, we want to have time together right now, in the now, talking about the now, what's going on in our relationship right now, what's going on in our lives right now. God wants us to spend time with him. And if we're just, if we say, all right, I'm going to have devotions. I'm going to sit down and read the Bible for half an hour. Well, you can spend time. You can spend half an hour reading the Bible or an hour or two hours. You can do that. But it's not devotional time unless you're nurturing your relationship with God in your heart. The parable of the sower. I want to give you an example of studying the Bible using this parable uh, that God has given to us, I believe, to really help us understand how transforming Bible study works. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 4. In the parable of the sower, Jesus told a very simple story that illustrates how Bible study works to transform our lives. It starts out in Mark 4, verses 3 and 4, a sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and ate them up. Um, imagine a footpath that's been you know, pounded down by a lot of people's feet, and then you decide one day, I'm going to make a garden there. What are you going to do to transform this footpath into a garden? Okay, you've got to dig up the soil, till, start working on it. Um, so what you're saying is you need something sharp, right? You've got to have something sharp to dig up the soil. What is the sharpest thing in the world? Well, the diamond's the hardest, but the sharpest thing, I'm talking in a spiritual sense, you know. The Word of God is a sword. It's the sharpest thing in the world. It divides even the, the, the soul and the spirit. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Bible is sharp. If you want to cultivate the hard soil in your heart, say you think about Bible study and you know you ought to do it, but it just seems like, oh, it's one more thing I need to do in order to be spiritual. You don't really feel like it, and you're not really drawn to the Bible. How do you get started in Bible study? When the sower goes out to sow, he doesn't just scatter the seeds on the ground, does he? First, you take something sharp. The sharpest thing in the world, 
If you want to break up that hardness of your heart where you don't even feel close to God, you may not even want to be close to Him, but you know you ought to be, here's what you do. You take the sword, the sharpest thing in the world. Now, if I take a sharp instrument to my pathway, you know, I'm, I'm turning this pathway into a garden now, right? I'm going to take that sharp thing and just kind of skim it across the surface, right? What do you want to do with that sword? Okay, the first thing you got to do is point it in the right direction, right? You can't just skitter it along the surface. You got to point it in the right direction. So point the sword at your heart. When you want to study the Bible and you want it to penetrate your heart, you need to point it at yourself. Take a verse and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me out of this? Or you may just, even before you open the Bible, say, God, is there something you want to talk to me about? Please talk to me. Please show me what I need to hear. And maybe he'll say, why don't we start studying about peace? Why don't we start studying about faith? Whatever it is, you may just open the Bible and say, I think I'm going to start studying 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Or go back to creation and study about, you know, God created the world. And think, instead of just reading it through, okay, check that off, spent my 20 minutes. Think about it, meditate on it. God wants you to envision what was going on in creation. Here he is molding Adam out of the dirt. Wow! He takes mud and gets mud under his fingernails. The God of the universe gets down there in the dirt and gets dirty to make a person. He, he has this personal interest in Adam and even though he formed us in a different way, he had this personal interest in molding every intricate little part of you of who you are. So there may be some things you don't really like about it. You might not like everything about your body or your face, but God made you exactly the way you are. And he puts such detail in every tiny little pore in your skin. He's made you in his image. So instead of just reading something, meditate on it. And don't just meditate on, well, that's an interesting story, but you've always got to make an application. How does that apply to me? This is how you, you point the sword at your heart. You think, that's great, but what does that mean to me? Maybe you read Psalms and Proverbs or the Gospels. Pick a parable. You know, those are easy things to start studying. Start meditating on, wow, what was happening in this story? You know, not long ago, I studied the story of Ruth, and it was fascinating. It was great. I, I spent, I don't know how long I spent in the book of Ruth, um, but even though it's very short, it has so many great applications. I studied about how, you know, how long it took Ruth to get from Moab back to Israel. It seems like it was about a three-day walk for her to go from Moab back to Israel. So here she is. She and Naomi are leaving, and Naomi says, stay here, don't go with me. And Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you. And not only does she say, I'm going to go with you, but here's something I hadn't thought about before. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. She's not just doing this for Naomi, is she? Now, it would be really nice and sacrificial of her to say, you know, Naomi, you're old, and I don't know who's going to take care of you back there, and I just can't bear to see that happen to you. So I'm going to go back with you, and as long as you're alive, you can know I'll be there. Well, that would have been wonderful, but she doesn't say that. She says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Wow. Ruth is taking upon herself a worse fate than Naomi. Naomi's going back as an old widow with no one, but she has an extended family there. Ruth is going there as a young widow 
with very little hope of ever getting married, who's going to marry a Moabite woman? She's probably not going to get married. She's been married to an Israelite guy for 10 years. She knows something about this culture. And she's going to go there, take care of Naomi until Naomi dies, but she has no children. She has no inheritance there. She's going to maybe, you know, live in Naomi's house or something since she's the barren wife of Naomi's son, but she doesn't have any friends there. She doesn't have any relatives there. This is a culture in which everybody stays with their family forever. And she has a mother. Naomi said, you guys go back to your mothers. But instead she says, where you die, I will die. She's making a commitment to Naomi's God. She's going to spend her life in Israel, not knowing what it's going to be like, never been there. I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'm going to do this. So when you take that, that parable and point it at your heart, how does that, how does that strike you? Wow, here's Ruth who says, wherever you take me, God, I'm going to be fine. Have you ever thought, Lord, please don't come before I get married? <laughs> I did. And I felt guilty praying that prayer, but I really, I really wanted to get married. Now I found out marriage is just one more chapter in the journey. The important thing is having God with me throughout all that journey. Here's Ruth who says, I'm going to go there. No matter what happens, all I want to know is that God is with me. And Naomi, I'm going to take, in, take upon myself something even worse than what you have to go through. Ruth is going to live alone as far as she knows. So she's going through what Jesus went through. Jesus took upon himself everything that I go through and much more. Then she spends three days, after she makes that commitment, she spends three days going there. And she gets there about the time of the barley harvest, which was the time of the wave sheaf. So this is the time that, that that wave sheaf symbolized Jesus. She goes through this, this death to self and three days of not knowing what's ahead for her and gets there at the time of a celebration of new beginnings. Isn't that interesting? You see, there are lots of ways you can study the Bible. Look at archaeological um, records. You can visualize and think, wow, what must it have been like to be in this situation? You can think about all of those things. But always point it at yourself. What does that mean for me in my life and my walk with God today? So you point the sword at your own heart. And then what do you have to do? If, if I'm um, taking this, this sword, I'm going to make this pathway into um, a, a, a garden, right? So I've got a sword, a sharp sword, and I'm pointing it at it. How about if I just tap it on the ground now? You've got to put some force behind it, don't you? So when you study the Bible, put some force behind it. Meditate. Think about it. Study it. Say, how does that apply to me? Maybe you want to look at other verses that are on a similar topic. I use the King James Version myself because that's what the verses come to me in my mind. You know, I've studied so much of the King James that when I think of a verse, then I can look it up in e-sword, and I know enough of the words from the King James. I wouldn't know what words they would use in the ESV or something like that. But whatever version you're using, you know, sometimes it's nice to use different versions and kind of compare. Then you can read it in this way, and then you read it in another way, read it in another way. There are lots of ways to study the Bible. But the main thing is do these three things, and you will find your Bible study will do some great things for you. You take the word, point it at your heart, put some force behind it. Spend time meditating on what it says to you. That takes quiet time. It takes depth. But as you do that, the Bible will start coming alive for you. It doesn't mean that if I pound on the, the ground for five minutes, I'm going to have a beautiful garden. It's going to take some time. Quality things take time. Quality relationships take time. 
But as you spend time with God and meditate on His love for you, you're going to find Bible study will be transforming for you. You know, you can med meditate on the parable of the sower. This is only one of them. But I just wanted to give you an, an example of how God wants you to study the Bible, and it will be a transforming influence in your life. Let it be something you really study for yourself. You know, you've heard that so many times. I heard that so many times for myself. But really studying it for myself is when the Bible became exciting and transforming for me. And I know that that will be the case when you do the same thing. Just persevere in letting the Word go straight into your heart. And God will do great things to transform your devotional time. All right, let's finish with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for giving us your word, this immeasurable treasure that teaches us more about you than we could learn in any other book. We love you, Lord. Amen.